0: Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now... There were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who, have, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus God raised up, and of what we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord.
1: How many of you are familiar with the story of the turtles? I don't mean the reptile or whatever type of animal it is, I also don't mean the British rock band. They were British, right? Turtles. The Turtle Traders. So the Turtle Traders, I met a guy who was one of the original Turtle Traders. Here's the story of the Turtle Traders. Richard Dennis was a successful commodities trader in the 70s and early 80s. His basic belief was that successful trading was something that could be taught to just about anyone. His partner, William Eckert, believed that successful traders had innate gifts and talents. So as two successful wealthy guys, they decided to settle the agreement by making a bet with humans. Dennis placed an ad in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and his experiment got over a thousand applicants from which he pulled a a little over a dozen people. They were all fairly intelligent college grads who were pretty good at mathematics and discipline, but none of them had experience in investment banking. After a short period, the Turtles were given trading accounts after he trained them a little bit, funded by his own money. He gave them anywhere between $500,000 and $2 million of his own money and said, now follow my strategies and let's see what happens. Over the next four years, the Turtles grew the investment, the original investment of a few million dollars, into $175 million, a compound annual growth rate of 80%. In other words, if you got $500,000, you were going to come out with $5 million four years later. To this day, it's still one of the most successful plots or strategies for success in investment trading. If you're gonna start up a business, you need a strategic plan so that you can have success at the end. If you're gonna cultivate successful strategies and be the most successful, you might buy into things like Jim Collins' Built to Last, where he talks about having big, hairy, audacious goals, creating a cult-like culture, and being willing to evolve as a business. But the most successful endeavor ever in history was the birth and growth of Christianity from its early phases. It spread and grew at a rate that was not matching to the time and day and age in which it existed. On the day of Pentecost, shortly after the resurrection, there was maybe a hundred disciples of Jesus. A hundred years later, there was about 10,000 by the year 300 A.D., according to religious professor Robert Wilkins, Robert Lewis Wilkins, there were six million out of the 60 million in the Roman Empire. It quickly grew to 10% of the Roman Empire, and within another century, it was greater than that. It continued to grow at an exponential rate. And what was God's strategic plan? A few dozen very average people and the Holy Spirit What happened? Pentecost happened. Now, the Luke-Acts is one big book. We're in the book of Acts now. For the past year, we were in the book of Luke. But for the next two months, we're in the book of Acts. Acts is a continuation of Luke. Luke begins telling the story of what Jesus had done and all that God did through Jesus. Acts carries it on where he says, I'm going to now tell you all the things that Jesus continued to do through the church. His strategic plan, if you would, to conquer the world. And the strategic plan went like this in verse eight of chapter one, which Matt Hemsley talked about last week. He said, the power of the spirit is going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's my strategic plan. And so on that day or shortly after, Jesus ascends into heaven 40 days after Easter, if you would. And on the 50th day, the day of Pentecost, the disciples are gathered in the upper room And that's when Pentecost happens, as we know it in the church. In Acts 2, verses 2 through 4, we read about the things that happens. It's descriptive, very evocative of something dramatic happening. There was the sound like a rushing wind. It doesn't say there was a rushing wind. It was like a rushing wind, like a hurricane, a tornado. And then what appeared to be like flames or tongues of fire, flames on the head of each person. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, they start speaking in other languages, declaring the mighty acts of God in languages they had never studied. That day as they went out into Jerusalem after hiding, afraid of their own lives, they go out boldly declaring the praises of God in in these other languages. And it says there were devout Jews in verses 5, 6, and 11. Devout Jews from every nation who were gathered there. There's then a whole list of the nations. They were basically from Iran, Iraq, Turkey, parts of Greece, and down through Egypt. Basically the known world where Jews would have been spread out in the diaspora. And they were amazed, perplexed, blown away. What is happening here? And of course, some were smart Alex, and said, they're just drunk. Peter gets up to explain. Peter, who was deathly afraid to be seen in public, to be known as somebody tied to Jesus, gets up publicly in front of all of these Jewish people and says, no, they are not drunk. What's happening is the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that was talked about in the prophet Joel hundreds of years ago. And the reason it's come is because Jesus Christ, he goes on to tell them, Jesus Christ, the one who God attested to, attested to with his miracles and the power in which he spoke, the one whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead and has declared him to be both Lord and Savior. And now the Holy Spirit that he promised, that God promised, has come. In order to understand the fullness of what's happening here, you have to see that this is not insignificant that it's the day of Pentecost. As Christians, we think of the day of Pentecost as the day when the Holy Spirit comes, but a Jewish person in the first century would have thought of Pentecost as a harvest festival. It took place 50 days after Passover, so you had Passover. 50 days later, you had the Feast of Pentecost, which was a first fruits of harvesting festival. But by the first century, it also was the day when you commemorated the law being given at Sinai. Now for those of you who don't have it memorized, when Israel is called out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and the Lord speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai. There's fire, there's smoke, all the Israelites are are sore afraid, if you would, and the Lord gives Moses the covenant, the law, not just the Ten Commandments with the two tablets like in uh, the you know, Yul Brenner sort of uh, Charlton Heston version, but the Lord gives Moses the covenant, the law, and says, you are now my people. Obey my law, be my people, and I will be your God. And he sets them apart as his people establishing his covenant. But Israel wanders away from God. And centuries later, they are in exile, a broken nation. And in the midst of their exile, no longer looking like God's people, God sends prophets. And the prophets say, one day, one day, Yahweh will come again. The Lord will return, and when he does, he will make a new covenant. But this one won't just be written on stone, it will be written on your hearts. And the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, will be poured out on all flesh, as it says in Joel 2. The Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. That's when I'm renewing my covenant. Peter gets up in front of the crowd and says, what's happening is God has come. He has come to renew his covenant. He has sent his spirit. It's here. That's what you're seeing and hearing. Now, for a good Jew in the first century, they had a very clear understanding of the presence of God because it's written throughout the Old Testament. But the presence of God or God's spirit in particular in the Old Testament is often local and episodic. It wasn't that God's spirit didn't exist. It just wasn't poured out on all flesh. So the spirit of God empowers individuals for action in the Old Testament. Samson has strength, right? David, in the power of the spirit, writes poetry and song. Elijah does miracles calling down fire. And the prophets, like Joel, speak prophetic truth by the power of the Spirit in them. So it's local and episodic. But you also see this other thing that kind of ties into Acts two here, which is when God appears in the Old Testament, he appears sometimes in what's called a theophany, which is a vision of who God is, a visual representation. God never appears as like the, the Jesus that we know fully, but he appears as fire often in the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, it's a fire pot representing God that Abraham sees. What does Moses see in the wilderness representing Yahweh? A burning bush. It looks like it's on fire, but it's not burning up. In the wilderness, Israel is led by day by a pillar of cloud and by night by a fire. On Mount Sinai, the mountain is on fire. And at Mount Carmel, Elijah calls down fire from heaven. When God appears, it's often as fire. And and basically the story was this: stay away. Keep your distance. Be afraid. This God is holy. And you are not. But now in Acts 2, where's the fire? Where's the fire of God's presence now? On every disciple. He's not distant. He's not local. He's personal and internal in and on every believer. And that's an amazing truth. It's telling us that the Spirit, as he comes, is the great equalizer. Joel 2.29 has this great phrase, We glossed over it probably in the reading of it, but it says the spirit will fall even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit. Even on the male and female slaves the spirit of God will be poured out. The ancient world, even in Judaism, was a classist system. It really did see those who were closer and those who were farther. The way a woman had access to God was through a man. And there were those who were higher up and those who were lower. And those who were higher up patriarchs versus slaves were those who clearly had access to God a little better. But the Spirit is the great equalizer falling on all. Neither gender nor class nor nationality disqualifies you. None are closer or farther. The Spirit is available to all. And if you are in Christ, By faith, you, just like the apostles on that first day of Pentecost, fully have the Spirit. There are no second class spiritual citizens in Christ. But do you know this? I mean, those those of you guys who are actually sitting here today, do you know God's presence by His Spirit in you? Is that your experience? How would you even know if the Spirit was in you? If you had the Spirit? How would you know? Well, you speak in tongues. You speak in unlearned languages. All the time you walk around and you speak in unlearned languages, the mighty deeds of God. No, right? A little aside on how to read scripture. This is me being obnoxious, but let's go for it anyhow. Um, Some scripture is prescriptive and some is descriptive. It's just a basic way to put it out there, okay? And we have to quickly learn the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. So there are all sorts of genres of writing in the Bible. There's apocalyptic literature filled with all sorts of metaphoric imagery, same as poetry, like the Psalms. Then there are letters written in Greek rhetoric where there's argumentation and reason being used. And then there's historical narrative, like in, uh, in the book of Acts or in Judges or first, uh, first Kings or something. So sometimes scripture is prescriptive, saying, do not steal. Or Jesus saying, love your enemies. Right? But sometimes it's descriptive, like, In the book of Judges, no Joshua, when Joshua and the Israelite army march around Jericho seven times on seven days, and on the seventh day they march around seven times and then blow their trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. Now, if you were going to take that description and say, therefore, that's what we should do, is that how you win a baseball game? March around the enemy's dugout seven times. You've got a rival in the office, you march around their desk seven times. You laugh, but we do stuff like that all the time. We do stuff like that all the time when we mix the prescriptive and descriptive. And we pick and choose when it fits. So be careful to not make prescriptive what is descriptive. The Holy Spirit does fall. They do speak in other languages. It is descriptive, meaning God acts in this way but it's not prescriptive that it must look like that for you. With all of scripture, I ask a few questions. Here's the question, you're reading any scripture. What does this tell me about God? Does it tell me anything about the nature of humanity and our plight, our need? And how does it describe God's plan of salvation? What does it reveal about that? Ultimately, I'm trying to get at two questions. What's the point? What's the big idea? And why was this even included in the Bible? What's the point of Acts 2? The point of Acts 2 is not look for flames. It's the Spirit has come. He has come to fulfill God's plan for the world and he is available to everyone. Okay, so the question back again is, how would you know if you have the Spirit? You would know you have the Spirit because the Spirit is working in you. Well, how do you know what the Spirit's work is? Well, not just in our passage, but in other parts of the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John towards the end, we get that the Spirit convicts us of sin and enables belief. In other words, without the Spirit, you actually will never come to faith. The Spirit is what causes you to desire God in the first place, and it's the root of transforming faith, that conviction and enabling to trust and believe. The Spirit also, according to Jesus, is our comfort, our assurer, he's our advocate It's the Spirit who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, to see God is not holy, other, but holy and loving. It's through the Spirit that we experience God. But I don't want to go into depth on those because actually they're not really what's being described here in Acts 2. In Acts 2, instead what we see is the Spirit working through his power. And this is literally the power for the miraculous healing, speaking in what's called tongues, other languages, casting out the demonic. God through the Spirit is working through the disciples as he did through Jesus to overcome spiritual darkness and evil. But don't limit it to that. It's actually the power of the Spirit that's not just in those miraculous supernatural things, it's also in things that are equally supernatural, we just don't think of them as that, like you becoming less of a jerk. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are fruits of the power of the Spirit working in you. So too are callings into ministry, like preaching, leading, generosity. I think sometimes you can get a little too narrow in your reading, we can. When there's a list in the New Testament, especially in Paul, Greek lists were never, almost never exhaustive unless it's clearly saying these three things, faith, hope, love, you know, that sort of thing. If it doesn't say that, it's these sort of things. So healing, generosity, wisdom, speaking in tongues is not an exhaustive list, just as love, joy, peace, patience is not an exhaustive list. These are the sorts of things God is going to work out in your life through the power of the Spirit. But ultimately, the question we have to ask is what's the purpose of this power? Acts 1.8 tells us the purpose of God's power through the Spirit is so that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The purpose of God's power in you as it was on this day was missional. We might even say that it's being externally focused, outward-facing, seeking gospel transformation for ourselves and for all people, boldly sharing the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen because that is our hope, our only hope of salvation, and pushing back the effects of sin and darkness in this dark and sinful world, caring for the broken and needy. The Spirit's power enables mission. And it does it through enabling you to be bold and joyful. Think about it on Good Friday, the disciples are scared to death, right? Peter denies Jesus, the rest of the disciples abandon him, and even after the resurrection, they constantly are hiding in the upper room. They are afraid. The spirit falls on them on Pentecost, and all of a sudden the disciples, who were deathly afraid of being arrested themselves and possibly crucified, they're out marching around, speaking in other languages. Peter gets up and gives a sermon. Hey, all of you, you guys crucified Jesus. You guys are going to hell, be careful. Where did he get this boldness? Where do they get this joy, if you would? That didn't sound very joyful. Well, some of the crowd has, a, has an idea. They're drunk. Now think about that boldness and joy. They see this boldness and this joy overflowing out of all these people. They're kind of acting crazy. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing. So it sort of makes sense to say, maybe they're drunk, Right? Why do people need a drink at a party? It makes them less uptight and has fewer inhibitions. Wine, even as the Old Testament says, gladdens the heart, right? Wine makes a person joyful and happy, talkative and silly, wild and daring. It's also a depressant. It dulls. It dulls. You're happy and uninhibited. Why? Because you get stupid. When you're drunk, you're actually dumber. That's why no person has ever run out on the middle of the football field in the NFL game, stolen the ball, and gotten tackled by the police when he was completely sober. He's not thinking about the consequences doesn't care. This is a great idea. And his friends are going to give him $100. Brilliant. The spirit does not create that sort of boldness. You're not uninhibited and bold because you're too dull to consider the consequences or because you're so arrogant, you just don't care what other people think. The reason why the disciples are bold and the Spirit enables you to be bold and joyful is because you are awakened, finally, to spiritual reality. You realize Jesus is alive. God loves you. The Spirit orients you to what truly matters. You begin to care so much for people that you don't care what they think. You want them to know the joy that you have too. If none of this matches your experience, comfort, conviction, assurance, trust, boldness, joy, power, what do you do? You should probably do the same thing that the crowds did that day. When they heard, according to verse 37, when they heard about Christ, they were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? And Peter answers in verse 38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. Repent. If you've not experienced the Holy Spirit like this, repent. Now, remember who's in front of Peter at this time. According to Acts, the people that are in front of Peter are devout Jews from every nation. These are the most faithful people probably in the world. They probably didn't have a vice list even half as long as most of ours. They had come from faraway lands at great cost to themselves, either to move into Jerusalem or they were there just for Passover and Pentecost, which would have been incredibly expensive in that day and age to stay for two months, the journey on foot, from faraway places, why? Because they were devoted to Yahweh. They were absolutely faithful people. And yet Peter says, you need to repent. Meaning repentance isn't just for the sinful and bad. Because repentance is not about your vice list. It's about your unwillingness to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and God. And we all do it. And that's why Peter goes on to say, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism for a Jew was renewal and reorientation into a new way of life. You were always baptized into the name of Yahweh. Peter says, the new way is Jesus. He is Yahweh incarnate. Renounce your past direction and need for control and lordship of your life and acknowledge Jesus and Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior. That's what you need to do and then you will receive the Holy Spirit. When you truly renounce and truly trust, you do receive the Holy Spirit. You may not have the same outward experience that they did in Acts 2, but the God becomes your God and he will take up residence in you. But look, you've gotta be open. Your heart must be open, receptive to all, all that God wants to do in you and all that he wants to accomplish through you. C.S. Lewis, surprisingly, has an insightful part on this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there running up towers making courtyards you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself the indwelling spirit intends to transform us into who we are intended to be who we were designed to be before the fall our true selves And our true selves are not just for us, but we become outward for others. The indwelling spirit causes us to push up to God and out to others in a way that is just not natural. Your passion for God increases and so does your compassion for everyone else. For God in that kind of upward, just for a metaphor trajectory, we want God more than anything else in the world. And we realize if I have God, if I have Christ, that's all I need. But that causes us to always push out, to have God's heart for other people, desperate for them to know him and willing to give everything for them. The Holy Spirit pushes us up and out. You might even say it makes us gospel-driven, externally focused, able to be in extended family, living missionally for, the people and places God has placed us in, not just for you. So to be clear here, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not your divine therapist. He's not there just for your emotional well-being. But the Holy Spirit does provide that, but not just for that. Nor is the Holy Spirit just for you to have powerful experiences of God except in that they enable you to love God and others more, both. The Spirit is never in you for your own good, only. It is inward, God affirming, assuring, strengthening, in order to enable you to upwardly connect to him more desperately and to more gloriously lay yourself out for everyone else in this world. In other words, the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ so that we more and more look like him and commissions us for God's kingdom living. You and I, together, are the body of Christ in this world. We are the presence of God in and for this world. You know, in Acts 1.1, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Luke, the gospel writer, says in the first book, and the first book he wrote is the Gospel of Luke, right? In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he goes on to talk about some other things. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, he talks about all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that now in the gospel, in the book of Acts, he's going to talk about all that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Now, the problem with that is that there's a logical disconnect. Because Jesus within the first 10 verses, ascends into heaven. He's not walking around the earth healing people and preaching anymore. He's not casting out demons and walking on water and and meeting the the woman at the well anymore. So how is Jesus continuing to do and teach? In John 16, he tells the disciples on the night before his crucifixion, it's better for you if I go, because then I can send the Holy Spirit. At the end of John, Mary Magdalene, I think, is clinging to Jesus, and Jesus says, Mary, don't cling to me. Meaning, you don't just need me here physically with you right now. If I don't go, I can't be in you. If I'm just here, walking around, there'll be times when I'm with you, and there'll be times when I'm far away. But if I go, I will always be with you. I will never leave you. And then, I will be everywhere that you are continuing to do and to teach. The book of Luke and Acts is one continuous story. It's a question of who's Lord. It begins looking like Caesar because he's pushing around Mary and Joseph and the little baby. Then Jesus walks along, looks like he's in charge. But then by the end, Rome crucifies Jesus and they're in Jerusalem in a buried tomb. It looks like it ends, but then on the third day he rises, and all of a sudden everyone in the world, well, they don't all believe instantly, but instead Jesus commissions his disciples, empowering them by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit falls on each individual, and slowly, but pretty fast actually, the gospel begins to spread out until the book of Acts ends in Acts 28, and where is Paul in Acts 28? He's back in Rome, and he's about to preach the gospel in front of the Caesar. Wow. And it ends. And Acts 29 is never written, except that that's what we're doing right now. You and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are writing Acts 29, the continuing story of all that Jesus began to do and teach and how he is transforming the world through us, his Christs in this world. That's crazy. God's strategic plan is us. A few dozen very average people and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, there's so many times when I want you to be present. I say it would be so much easier if you were just walking around on this earth. But the promise of the Holy Spirit is that you indwell each of us that by your spirit you assure us, empower us, embolden us to be Christ for the world, to have a heart for the Father like you did, and to have a heart for all people as you did. Oh God, may we tap into that spirit and live by the power of the Spirit each and every day. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.